We're continuing our look at phrases in the confession. If you're a member of this church, you were asked to read it before you came to a membership interview. Um, And just to remind everyone, particularly as we're in a season where we have a lot of visitors, our elders are put forward only if they subscribe to the confession as a whole. But as a church, we have a lengthy confession that's good, a lengthy historic confession. I think that's helpful, time-tested. But as individual members, we don't require that members sign something in their conscience saying that they agree with every single phrase of the confession. We just ask them to read it and let the elders know what, if anything, they have questions about or disagreement with, and that they agree not to work against the confession of faith. So if you're a visitor or a guest and you're considering membership, but you think, I'm not quite sure that in good conscience I know everything that's in the confession, so I can't say I fully agree with it, we're asking you to read it, consider it, ask all the questions you want, but just know that the, the calling we're asking you to as a church is to not contradict this confession and to know that this is the, the, the words that we think Scripture confesses, so we confess it. These are the doctrines that arise from Scripture, so we confess it. So with that being said, what we're doing tonight is not doing an overview of the confession, or should I say in this class, we're not doing an overview of the confession We're taking phrases that sometimes either historically have been phrases that people think, well, I don't know if I agree with that part or not. Or they read it and they think, I'm not sure what that means. And so this fall season, we're just looking at phrases or nuggets in the confession. And for that, I want to take you to chapter 10 of the Second London Confession. There is a copy for you in your um, seat in the hymnal. You need to go to the very back, the bottom page numbers, not the big hymn numbers, psalm numbers. But the little small numbers, chapter 10 of the confession is on page 676, 676. And we're in chapter 10, paragraph 3. And historically, this is one of probably the top five phrases that people either don't understand, ask questions about, or say that they can't agree with. But our challenge is that it is also one that, particularly if this situation has impacted you, is one of the most challenging on this side of eternity, and that is the loss of a child, particularly an infant. So chapter 10, paragraph 3, reads this way, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Now I want to look at the larger context and then kind of zoom inward. If you remember our series in Daniel, we did that a lot. Let's look, let's look at the larger context and then we'll zoom inward or outward. I would submit to you that you need to read our statement of faith that way. Oftentimes, in every chapter, just about, the first paragraph is the summary of the doctrine, and then the next few paragraphs describe in greater detail that doctrine or apply that doctrine to specific situations. So when people read through the confession, they read it as we often do in 2023. We kind of pick and choose and everything sort of stands on its own. 
But you need to read the confession as a united whole. And you need to remember that even though it's not the inspired word of God, that there is a context that you need to consider. So people will be reading through the confession, particularly if they're new to it, and they will oftentimes like what they see, particularly if they've heard of this Calvinism thing, this Reformed thing. And then they get to chapter 10, paragraph 3, and it says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. Some of them are instantly gripped with the pains, the searing pain of the memory of that time when they themselves lost an infant. So we want to handle all of the doctrines of God's Word with care, but these kinds of things we have to handle with a special kind of care. But what is this saying? And here's where the context comes into view. Two types of context. The first is a context which perhaps is a little foreign to us, and that is that this document was written in 1677 and ultimately became known as the 1689 Confession because of the way that it was adopted and those kinds of things. But think about what 1677 was like. Infants were dying all the time. Now, by God's grace to us and by the technologies that we have given to us as a gift by his hand, this is less of a reality. It still happens. It may have happened to many of you. And when we talk about elect infants dying in infancy, we mean young infants or we mean miscarriages. We mean infants that die in the womb as well as infants that die before they are able to give evidence of saving faith. So the context of the document is it was written in a time where infant mortality was very high, very high. But also the context, secondly, that we need to consider is the chapter itself. What chapter is this phrase in? Sometimes when you read a phrase in the confession and you think to yourself, what does this mean? You need to ask yourself first, what chapter am I in? Well, we're in the chapter on effectual calling. What is effectual calling? Well, let's look at the first paragraph because it defines it for us. Those whom God has predestinated unto life, he is pleased and is appointed and ex- uh, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. That's effectual calling. Think of what happened this morning during the preaching moment. It happened to be me this morning preaching, but there was a moment in the sermon where I was preaching and I was, in a sense, calling people to Christ. That is the outward call. I am outwardly calling any and all to Christ. But the scripture speaks of an inward effectual call. That those that God has elected or predestinated unto life, the spirit calls savingly and effectually. It is effectual. But there is visible fruit of that, isn't there? There's visible fruit. 
The visible fruit is they outwardly profess Christ. They respond in faith and repentance of sin. But what about those that are human beings who do not or cannot respond outwardly? And that is why this phrase is in our confession. What do we do about infants? And then the next part of the phrase is, so also are the other elect who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of, spirit, of the Spirit or the Word. What is in view here largely is those with mental handicaps, mental difficulties. There was actually a small group of individuals who made the argument in the 1600s that those who were deaf could not hear the Word, so they couldn't be outwardly called, thankfully a minority position. But the reality is, what about anyone who is elect, but who is not going to be able to give evidence of response. And so that is why this statement is in our confession. And it's why it's in this chapter. There is often a key to interpreting the confession, and that's why this is here. Now, our confession lists it because some other confessions, based on how the theology is put together, because you need to remember, theology works not as individual statements, but as doctrines that rub up against each other, right? Let me give you an example. If you say that the Ten Commandments is the law of God, then you need to talk about what the Sabbath is, because it's the law of God. You can't say, well, this is what I believe about the Ten Commandments, but over here, this is what I'm going to do with the Sabbath. No, 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 you, it, it works together as a united whole. Well, in other doctrines, statements of doctrine during the Puritan era, they may have had different kinds of reliances. This is a credo-Baptist document. This is a document written by believers, Baptists. There could have been, in the time of the Puritan era and there were undoubtedly Puritans who made the argument that because children were part of the covenant, because they were baptized as infants, that there was every assurance that they would see heaven's shores. Of course, by the blood of Christ alone, not because they were innocent. No Puritan would have made that argument. They wouldn't have been a Puritan if they said, well, a, a, a baby gets to go to heaven because it's not a sinner. No, babies are sinners. A, a, an infant in its mother's womb at two days old is conceived in sin and in need of Christ's work. But the Baptists, as they were putting together their confession, they had to deal with the fact that we don't baptize our babies. And here's what we believe boldly about effectual call. But if the effectual call results in people coming effectually to Christ and professing him, what of those who don't have the opportunity? And so what do they write? Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. The focus here is less about how many infants that is, but rather on the fact that the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit applies to all God's elect. The normal means is that they hear the gospel preached and they respond. But there will be infants who are elect 
And in God's sovereign plan, they are effectually called in the same way, just not outwardly visible. They are regenerated. So are those who are mentally incapable of the normal process of responding. Now, let me just say this. So far, we're talking about context and doctrine. But I can guarantee you, most of you in this room have thought of an individual. A child you have lost, or perhaps uh, someone that you've known who has had some kind of mental handicap. This ought to not scare us into thinking, oh, what do I do about election? This ought to help us to see that the effectual calling, the work of the Spirit, in bringing the elect is full and complete. And so this is why this is in our confession. The basis is the mercy of God and the decree of God. The confession doesn't list a number of elect infants. I suppose it's possible for a person to say, I believe that all infants are elect. Admittedly, you would have to make that by certain kind of inference. There's no text of scripture that declares it that way. Others will say, I don't know how many infants it is, but all the elect ones will be regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around election. <laughs> what in the world? Do you all actually believe that infants need Jesus? Yes. I remember. I remember the weight of preaching at a cemetery where a baby of 20-some weeks was to be laid in the ground. And the question comes to mind, what do you say? In one sense, it could be really easy to say, well, this is an infant, so it's in heaven. You want to offer comfort. That's exactly what you do. Pastorally, you press people into the mercy of God. You press people into the goodness of God. But you do make clear that in that moment, even infants like this one need the shed blood and righteousness of Christ. You see, we're born in sin. We believe in original sin, don't we? And so, what we don't want to do is do what many of our brothers and sisters around the world do, and we have categories. Well, these are the ones who don't need Jesus' blood because they're innocent. Probably don't have to convince most of you, but babies aren't innocent, right? They're cuddly, they're cute, and thankfully, they're much more innocent in their life than we are, having lived the years that we have, but they need Christ's blood. There will be no one on heaven's shores on the day of judgment, infant or long-seasoned one who lived a hundred plus years, who is there but by the blood of Christ. So the context helps us to see they're dealing with a very pastoral question. So often this, doc this document deals with very pastoral questions. It's not a dry document. Over and over and over again. It's like the theologians are pastors, and they know we can say this, but we have to pastor in the cemetery. So it's very pastoral. And they get to the question, what about elect infants? Are they too able to be called by the Spirit and regenerated? But what about those who don't have the ability to, in the normal process of things, due to mental handicap, are they, are they able to respond to the gospel 
it doesn't seem like we're seeing them respond to the gospel. We don't know how to call them outwardly to the gospel. And yet, the hope that we have here is what? Because there is one means of regeneration by the Spirit, that all the elect will be regenerated and saved by Christ. Let me read you a couple of quotes. One of the things that muddied the waters a little bit, in my opinion, is that our beloved brother, Charles Spurgeon, when he was publishing a version of our confession, which is the confession that he held to, um, he removed the word elect from this particular chapter. And so, in essence, it, it, it read infants dying in infancy. And so many people started to kind of use the argument that it's all infants. And that may be your personal view, that it's, it's all infants. All infants are elect. I don't think that our confession requires you to pick a number. But as it was written unedited, it requires you to do two things. Number one, to take comfort in the fact that those who die, who don't seem to have outward fruit of professing Christ, that that alone is not the final word. That if they are elect, they will have been regenerated. But secondly, it does require you to see that God's election is not just of adults, but of souls. Infant souls. Souls with those who have handicapped bodies. And souls of otherwise normal human beings. Right? A couple of statements. Perhaps the chief writer of our confession, Nehemiah Cox, afterwards... If you want to hear me talk about cemeteries and my recent journey in London to see Nehemiah Cox's grave and the adventure that that was, I'll be glad to tell you about it. But here's what he wrote. Probably the person who put together uh, the particular parts of our confession for other churches to adopt wrote this. <clears throat> and I'm going to read his words unedited, but we would not speak this way today because he uses the word idiot in a way that we used to use that word, and he means those who are uh, mentally uh, impaired. He says this, As to that which he adds concerning infants and idiots, to suppose them no way concerned in sin as he doth, and so well enough without Christ is like the rest of his doctrine. He's contradicting a quite frankly, a false teacher of the day. This I say, because the scripture saith it, which declares all to be under sin, even those who have not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgressions, meaning actually, haven't lived outside the womb to commit a visible sin that we can see, and all sin to deserve wrath, that neither infants nor idiots, and again, please translate that into modern language, can stand before God without a mediator. They have sin enough to damn them, but there is grace enough in God and merit enough in the blood of Christ to save them, unto which, and not their own innocency, they must be beholding for salvation. We want to make that clear, that infants that are saved are saved by the blood of Christ. And then listen to this quote. This one is by Hercules Collins, another signatory of our confession. 
May not an earthly king bestow his bounty upon a poor dumb cripple that can neither ask nor go to him for it? No, nor return him vocal thanks? Is not this to allow and say what I have said, that infants are happy through the imputed righteousness of Christ, though as poor dumb cripples that can neither ask nor go nor return thanks? You see what they're doing? They're pressing the issue toward Christ, right? That infants need Christ. And that infants, just because they're infants, aren't outside the work of God's electing grace. So as we consider this doctrine tonight, what I would encourage you to see is that, yes, the context matters, both the fact that the people who wrote this, many of them lost multiple children themselves. Study the life of John Owen. He didn't write this, but he wrote a sister confession. Lost multiple children, multiple children, buried most of them. So it was a very palpable issue. Do you not say anything or do you say something? Well... They lived in a day where you sought to say something. But then the context of this should be interpreted in the chapter that it's in. This is a chapter on effectual calling, so they're addressing an issue related to that larger topic, right? They didn't set out to deal with infants. They set out to deal with effectual calling and the questions that come up. We'll see the same thing when we get to that phrase, that Pope is that Antichrist. Everybody's like, oh, that's the one phrase in our confession that I just can't get to because I don't think that the Pope is the end times Antichrist. That's not what the document says. What chapter is that in? Well, it's in a chapter about ecclesiology. So we, we need to read this as a document that was intended to be read chapter by chapter and take those phrases and interpret them in light of that doctrine. Well, brothers and sisters, let's see what questions or thoughts you have this evening as we walk through this. And I know that this is one that is perhaps less philosophical sounding than the last two weeks and much more difficult for us, both pastorally um, and in a life where we are living among those who lose loved ones, it can be very difficult. But let's talk about it to the extent that you're willing. What questions might you have? So the hearing of the gospel is the normal means. Oh, okay. And in fact, um, if you read the next, and we didn't read this, but if not you, um, uh, Lisa, but if, if a person were to read the next phrase, they also want to guard against going too far and saying, well, maybe the Lord does that. Look, look at what they say. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of, wor- of the word and may have some operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor truly come, uh, can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved. They're wanting to guard against the opposite extreme that says, well, if the Lord can occasionally regenerate an infant who who doesn't hear the preaching of the word, well, maybe he's doing that among the nations. Maybe we don't even need to send missionaries, right? So they're, they're guarding against that. The, 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 the normal path 
is that a person, Romans 10, hears the gospel and responds and through the outward means of the preaching of the gospel is drawn by the Spirit. But there will be instances where a baby in a womb, perhaps, who has not ears to hear, right? A de- let's say a deaf baby in the womb. We don't know that he or she's deaf, but he or she is and dies. If they are elect, then this is saying they will be re- regenerated in the same way. Yeah, great question. Good. What else? No, it's, it's very much, it's a great question. Uh, incapable would be specifically, uh, they are infant-like, although they're not infants. So they do not have the outward ability to hear the word or to respond to the word because of severe mental uh, disability. That would be different than people who are living in an unreached people group somewhere who... Are, who do not have the gospel and are not elect. So I think what this is saying is, we're, and again, I want to be as clear as I can. I, this, is, this is saying there can be instances where those who are elect, who have mental difficulties, will be regenerated. I don't think this is saying all people are in the same boat related to their mental status. So we cannot say that we should not worry about the tribes who haven't heard Christ, heard of him, heard of his word, know that they're going to be required to claim Christ or not. But there can be situations where there will be among the elect from every nation and tribe and tongue those who actually cannot respond to the gospel. And there is the hope that we have that even though they don't make outward profession of faith or can't even, with their cognitive faculties, reason through the call of the gospel, if they are elect, they will be regenerated. I think the only reason is because the men who put this together knew that a consequence of saying we have to hear the gospel to be saved is what about those who actually are sitting under the preaching of the word in our wombs or in our seats but they are completely and utterly mentally uh, incapacitated. What about them? And the question is, God's election is not an election only towards physical ability. So there will be those among the elect, right? And so if this were a chapter on election and missions, it, it, they probably would put other safeguards in place. So they're, they're not, they're, they are making a distinction, but the distinction is because it's about effectual calling, and so it's who actually can be called. Well, anyone that hears the gospel has that possibility, but there are some who they may sit under the preaching of the word, but they're one month old. They're not going to be able to respond mentally to the gospel. What if they pass away that next week? And they're trying to deal with that question pastorally. Yeah, does that make sense? 
So it seems like they're making a distinction, but the reason is because it's, a, it's in that chapter on effectual calling, right? And they want a safeguard. It's not, hey, there might be elect somewhere. You may have heard people make this argument. There may be elect somewhere, and so why bother sending missionaries? Kind of a hyper-Calvinism kind of, hey, we're just, God's going to save who he wants to save, and we shouldn't. They're dealing with a very specific sliver. Some will be hearing the preaching of the word, but will not be able to outwardly respond. What do we do with that? Right. Good. These are great questions. I know these are, in some ways, they can be painful questions. If we're honest, we live in a world where infants die. That's painful. Right. Other questions? Yeah. Well, there are kind of two main, well, there's probably more than two views, but there are two main views on that. Um, some take that to mean David saying, he's an infant, he's going to die, we're both, I'm going to see him one day in heaven. Others would say that David has, according to progressive revelation, the understanding that all people who die go to the place of the dead, Sheol, right? And he's not making a theological statement on the destination of his child, but he's saying, we're all going to go the way of death. And so people choose one way or the other. Many do use that as an argument for all infants. I mean, David would only say what he would say if, you know, and so a person would need to make an argument one way or the other on that. And I think you certainly could, could go down either path and not be outside the pale of the, you know, how people have interpreted it in the past. Does everybody know that passage, right? David's infant child dies. I will go to him. He will not come to me. I will go to him. What is he saying? Right. Yeah. If, um, so this is not restricted to those that are Yes, um, and this may sound like a funny first response, but I don't mean it to be. Here is where it's really helpful to be a Baptist, in my opinion. Um, we don't base infant salvation primarily on connection to the covenant through parents. So I would not look at an individual personally. Some of you may disagree. I would not look at an individual and say, well, you got saved when you were 50, but in your 20s and 30s, you lost two or three babies, but you weren't a Christian, so you, those babies you should probably not elect. Like, I, I don't think there's really ever any case in Scripture, any warrant in Scripture for us to be able to pinpoint election other than the Scripture says, if you respond to the outward call, you're elect. But, and, and this goes back to that question, but what about those who can't respond? And so... No, I, I don't think we should, I think we should be very careful saying the status of election 
of infants is somehow definitely and definitively tied to the moment of conversion of the believing parent. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is absolutely true. The scripture affirms that. Yeah. And we need to remember looking at this, and we, we typically don't look at this issue until it's before us in the cemetery or the hospital, right? And so in those moments of deep pain, I don't think that's the best time for, you know, and you're, of course you're not, I'm using your question as a springboard. To, I wouldn't, brothers and sisters, please don't take our confession to the hospital room when someone has had a miscarriage and read 10.3 to them. <laughs> is 10.3 true, true? I think it is. I think there is the reality that there is uh, God's election. That, that's actually meant as an encouragement in this. Election is not meant for us to uh, somehow fear. One of the brothers in the congregation this week sent, sent me something to listen to and hadn't made my way all the way through it, but one of the speakers was talking about the, the doctrine of election and how it's actually meant as a comforting doctrine. Right? Well, I think we can say the same thing even about elect infants. But we also need to say that God is not required to save anyone. And that we are all, all of us, lost in Adam. And we, and we have to, on this side of, I hope no one is currently dealing with this right, right now, but we have to, on this side of the, the issue of pain, we have to be willing to say, wait a minute, who needs Jesus' blood? Who will face eternal damnation outside of Jesus' blood? Every human being. Not just some of us who live past a so-called age of accountability. No, 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 no. We're all lost. The psalmist can say, in sin my mother conceived me. Right? So we all need the blood of Christ. And I think this helps us to see that there will be instances when those who we can't see respond in the normal way, who can't actually, Romans 10, how will they you know, believe unless there's a preacher who goes and preaches to them, they, they won't necessarily have that normal physical ability that the rest of us have. Even among them, God's merciful and glorious work of election will stand. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. Normally, the outward means is the preaching of the word. But in some cases, there will be those who will be regenerated. Good. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Was there a question over there? Yep. In light of what we were talking about uh, with the Theo Baptist Covenant theology, yeah. Family, yeah.
see his goodness so much there, then we can take con- concrete comfort from that. Yeah. This, even if we're not given a concrete answer about this in the grave right now. Yes, yes. So those of you that have studied our, our statement of faith or any of the other Puritan statements of faith, you know that what, how we put the Bible together as Reformed individuals, both Presbyterian and Baptist, is that we see it by way of covenant, right? Um, not that God acts in different time periods throughout history, but that there, there is a covenant of grace. And one of the differences between us and the Presbyterian brothers, who we, quite frank, and sisters, who we love, quite frankly, and have benefited so much from them, is that we do not believe that our children, as New Covenant members, are in the covenant. Now, quite frankly, I think my children, by living in my house, get kind of covenantal runoff. <laughs> they get the blessings of being in a home where hopefully there's prayer, there's Bible reading, there's family worship. So there, is, there are benefits, but they're not external members of the covenant the way that Abraham's children were members of the Abrahamic covenant. But our Presbyterian brothers and other Reformed Paedo-Baptists believe that, and so when their children die, there seems to be this, well, because there was a... And not all of them would say this the same. Because they were external members of the covenant and they received the sign of the covenant as an infant, then there's this extra reason we have to hope. And I don't think we have to take any of that hope away. We just don't ground it in in a... in a sacramental sign, right? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, good. Maybe one other question? What would you say if, you say there's a number, I think it was the number, and I guess it could have said all infants are elect that die in infancy year. So what would you say if the people that believe there, you can't say one way or the other, Yes, um, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. I'm going I'm to make a statement and then I'm going to step away from the pulpit very visibly so everyone knows that I am giving you my opinion. Uh, what I can say from behind the pulpit, not that there's nothing special here, but what I can say is that the best thing that we can do in the loss of any individual, but the best thing that we can do in the, in the loss of infants or mentally handicapped individuals is point to those that remain to Christ and the hope that we have in the gospel. And we have to be careful that we don't ground our hope in infant innocency, because that doesn't exist now, after the fall, or even the innocency of a mentally handicapped person. We have to ground our hope in the gospel, so that when we're preaching the funeral service of that infant, we're preaching Christ and him crucified. Right? Now. Figuratively, I'm going to step away for a second. Here's my personal opinion. And I, I mean this. And <laughs> This is difficult to say. Honestly, if any of you were to lose an infant, my personal gut reaction would be, I think we have more reason to hope than we do to have sorrow. That's my personal leaning. That's what would be going on in my head. Now, I would not look at you in that moment and say, your infant is definitely in heaven because they were innocent. In fact, it is probably in my years of ministry the trickiest, and when I say tricky, I don't mean in wrongdoing. I mean, it's the most difficult balance to maintain. How do you have accurate theological precision and not give people hope in something that hope is not to be found in, namely human innocency? 
But how do you also point them to Christ? So I would want to constantly be pushing you and your spouse, you and your loved ones that remain towards Christ. But if I'm honest with you, there would be this unspoken, because I, I have to be careful as a minister to not press upon you things that I can't demonstrate to you from Scripture. But personally, I would be thinking we have every reason to hope. And I know others might answer it differently. They may say, I I don't really know how many infants are elect. I think our point is this phrase is here and it's in the chapter on effectual calling. So what they're dealing with is the issue of who, who can we say can be effectually called? And that's why they put it here. I don't know if you've ever read it and thought, well, I wonder why they put this thing about infants randomly in the middle of this chapter on regeneration, effectual calling, this kind of stuff. Well, that's why, right? Because the normal process is you hear the gospel preached, the Holy Spirit effectually calls you, and you respond in faith, sometimes outwardly, but oftentimes it takes a few days, weeks for people to see that fruit, but you respond. What about those who can't hear? as the word is preached. They can't receive, it seems, as the word is preached. We have every reason to hope that God's decree of election is not limited. And in in that we rejoice. Well, brothers and sisters, thank you for engaging this one. This is a pastoral one. It's a difficult one, is it not? But I would rather us have a robust theology even when we have to talk about painful things than not mind the riches of God's word in preparation for very difficult things that may come our way in God's good providence. Well, let's pray together. Loving Lord, we thank you that we can even consider these kinds of things. I thank you for these questions. Most of us in this room have known either the pain ourselves or known the pain on the faces of others as they've lost an infant or a young child or someone that was mentally handicapped. And we thank you that we can consider the truth that our salvation really rests ultimately in the decree of God and that in instances where there may not have been the ability to outwardly respond to the gospel because of mental deficiency or because of even lack of physical birth, that there is by your hand a beautiful work of effectual calling and regeneration, all based on the blood of Christ. And so we pray that you would encourage us in this. We pray that whether we're ministers or not, you give us compassion and the ability to care well for our brothers and sisters in painful times. And we thank you for this discussion tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.